Today on the Broly Talks Hockey Podcast, I'm joined by an analytics expert, Patrick Bacon, also known as Top Down Hockey on Twitter. We discuss how he got his start in analytics, growing up a Sharks fan on the West Coast, some rapid-fire NHL questions, including the most overrated and underrated NHLers, Matthews versus Dreisaitl, and we also discuss his plans for the future. All of this and much more in this week's Broly Talks Hockey Podcast. Hello guys, welcome back to the Broly Talks Hockey Podcast. In today's special episode, I am joined by one of the pioneers in analytics. He's built his own expected goals model and he's really big in the analytics and I'm thinking you guys are going to love some of his opinions. So how are you doing today, Patrick? I'm doing well. How are you, Brody? I'm doing all right. I kind of want to get right into it here and we were talking a bit before and you said you're a hockey fan first. So I just want to know what was your favorite team growing up? San Jose Sharks. Are you on the West Coast, I'm guessing then? I am. I'm from Fremont, California. It's about a 20-minute drive to SAP Center where the Sharks play. So when you would have been growing up, they would have been like 10 years in the league then, I guess? I was born in 97. Oh, wow. So okay. I think that they had a six or seven years in the league up to mm-hmm. that point. But they came in in 92, so they would have had six seasons. They would have just completed a sixth. So they would have been starting to get competitive then when you started watching? Yeah, they had those They had those seasons, those uh, incredible seasons where they beat the Red Wings in the playoffs and then the Calgary Flames in their third and fourth year. And then they, they went through a bit of a lull, drafted Patrick Marlowe about two months after I was born. But around 2003, 2004, that was when they made the Western Conference Finals for the first time. That's around the time that I kind of formed like memories that I still retain to this day. So they've pretty much always been a competitive team throughout my life, the last couple of seasons notwithstanding. And did you kind of grow up playing hockey on the West Coast or no? Not really. No, I, I did a, a summer camp when I was a kid and I played beer league the past year before COVID happened. But definitely not. That's not my background starting playing hockey. Nope. Beer league is fun though. Oh, it is it's fun. Really fun. It's definitely fun. Yeah, I played with my dad, who's in his sixth, to give you an idea of the quality of competition. There. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's sometimes the most fun. They're sometimes kind of like, they're not the greatest players, but they're the most fun to play with. Definitely, definitely. And they still give you a challenge, because you know, it's not like I'm a superstar, right? I didn't have a ton of experience. Yeah. <laughs> did your dad kind of get you into hockey growing up, or did you kind of just find it on your own? Yeah, my parents both, they were shark season ticket holders before I was even born. So it just kind of, it was just instilled in me. From birth. Okay. And when did you kind of get into the analytical side of, of hockey? I think it was around 2013 that I kind of read about Corsi. kind of like the idea, right? Okay, yeah. I didn't really start. I, you know, I followed it, right? As I followed hockey, I followed stats, right? I learned about expected goals, had my questions, had my, had my thoughts. It, was, thoughts. it wasn't until about six months ago that I actually started getting into my own modeling and building stuff out. So kind of a, not really one answer to that question, but been a fan for years, been a participant for half a year. And Corsi, that would have come out right around 2013 or would have been around for a while then? So I know that they were tracking the stats since 2007, 2008. I think that Corsi maybe gained some prominence closer to 2010, 2011-ish. But I, I, I just remember really hearing about it and really kind of studying it and mentioning it when my favorite player had a good Corsi, I think it was around 2013 that I really kind of jumped on that wave. I know a lot of these analytics kind of, they started getting tracking in 2007, 2008. Is there a specific reason for that? And is it kind of like a new era or what, why did they kind of just start there? Was it just a random date? So I know that the real-time scoring system had existed even before then. I know that 
there was a website called War on Ice, which was just a hockey analytics website that had data from at least 2006, 2007, so even before then. So that's maybe somewhat available somewhere. And I know the first expected goal model was built by Alan Ryder and published around, I think, 2003 or 4-ish. So there's been some data out there for some time. But I think 2007, 2008 was when they said, okay, we're going to really legitimize this real-time scoring system, make it a real thing, and let the outputs of it kind of drive player contracts and whatnot. And so I think that just, I don't know if there was any specific reason for that date, probably like any change that we decide to make. I was going to say, because I thought that it would make the most sense if it was like after the lockout they started tracking. And that's when I, at first, when I heard that, I thought, oh, the lockout was 2006, but it was not 2006. But yeah, it was 04, 05. So we had two seasons post lockout without tracking. Okay. And you were talking about Corsi a little bit before. Corsi's kind of, it's not the biggest stat in the world anymore, if, if I'm not wrong, right? No, probably not. I think that expected goals have kind of overtaken it, right? We had. Corsi and the big complaint with Corsi was that it did not take into account the quality of each shot so that you, so you could theoretically just pump low percentage shots at the net and juice your Corsi in practice. I'm not sure that this really ever happened. I don't think any players were actually doing this, but there are some teams that, that get a lot of quantity without getting great quality. And then there's vice versa. There seems to the Minnesota wild who get outshot, but control more quality shots. And so I think people have just kind of switched to expected goals and it it seems to generally have a bit more predictive value when used properly, right? I think that the top game prediction models right now use expected goals. There's a reason they don't use Corsi anymore. They used to. So I'd say it's kind of overtaken Corsi. I think Corsi is still something that you probably should take a look at if you've got the time and you want to try to learn more and dive deeper into a player. Like I think early into the season, like when each team had played 10 games, I think it's probably better if you're looking at a player's on-ice Corsi than on-ice expected goals because expected goals can be just the goalie gives up a, a rebound they shouldn't have and then the other team gets a shot that's like a 0.5 expected goals, right? 50% probability of scoring. And then that's not really any skater's fault, but it makes a huge dent in the expected goals number. So I think that in small samples, especially for skaters, I think Corsi still can be useful. But generally speaking... Yeah, expected goal seems to kind of overtake in Corsi as the, the metric that's used there, yes. Because the only time I really see Corsi now is on regularized, adjusted, plus minus, right? That's the term for it. That's really all I see Corsi anymore. Yeah, and I definitely say wrap okay. myself when I'm thinking in my head about something. It's not something I often talk to people out loud about. So it's not like I really say it, but no, wrap them, sure. Yeah, I get, I get it. Like, I'm just wondering what goes into the decisions on what goes on these charts because they have goals, expected goals for, goals for. And I just kind of wonder why is there no goals against per 60, like on these charts that, like, Evolving Hockey was big with the Rapham charts. I know you've came out with a couple of charts, some interesting designs, like the ones, what was it? It's like, uh, has a lot, ah, I can't remember the term, but you use the histogram. Sorry? The histogram you're talking about, probably with the. Yeah, I, those always confuse me. I don't know why they're so complicated like they don't look complicated but you try and read into it and i'm just so confused when i look at these yeah and i probably could have done that one a little bit better i mean that that was a really niche thing that i did first of all the the histograms right the that was to basically show the variance within regularized additive plus minus so show kind of how big the error bars are and where a player's true impact could lie compared to where we're expecting it just based on variance so 
the first question, right, was what goes into showing on those charts. And so it's interesting. If you look at Corsi, for regularized additive plus minus, that's more repeatable than regularized additive plus minus for expected goals. So from year to year, if you take a player's Corsi, wrap them in year one, you are much more likely to get a closer estimate of their wrap them in year two than if you do that for the expected goal numbers. A lot of reasons why that could be. I'm not going to go into all my pet theories and whatnot, but that's, I, I, I think, again, it, it's just one thing where Corsi is always, it always can be good because it's just, get back to the basics, just for a second, get back to the basics, right? Maybe there are some wonky rebounds that are causing these expected goal numbers. Maybe it's just a fluke, right? The Corsi can just help get back to the basics. And then for the goals four, I think there's this idea that certain players do certain things on offense that just lead to more goals being scored, but don't show up. In expected goals, an example of that would be like Patrick Kane with his passes he makes where he makes these passes, right? He contributes to these plays constantly where the shot's true probability of going in is 50%, but the models only say 20% because it's from 15 feet out and doesn't appear that dangerous uh, based on what we get from the real-time scoring system. And then the goals against are not shown because it's just something that's mostly out of a player's control. And if they were shown, you would just see some wild variance from year to year. There's basically no repeatability there on the goals against. Actually, there's not much repeatability on the goals for for defensemen either. But it's just it's not something that defensemen really control or forwards for that matter. Goals against year to year. It's just it's their decision, right? I might personally include it if I were making those charts just just for fun to show more info, right? It's, I I can't speak to exactly what they said at a given time, but that's. I've read them kind of explain that before and, and I, I understand it. It makes sense. I don't necessarily hate the idea. So I think that's why the, the goals against are not shown. It's just, it's all about, you know, what you want to show, right? What you want to display. I mean, those, those wrapping charts, they have sure gained some traction, right? They have gained a lot of publicity. You see them everywhere. They're, they're iconic at this point. I, I think Tony D'Angelo has gone on Twitter and attacked them specifically and said, I see these charts all the time and they're stupid. And that's, that's just the, I, that's a qualification to me. That's a, it's like a big, it's a badge of honor, frankly, if you're that relevant, that some player comes in and, and whines about your charts. So yeah, they're, they're good stuff for sure. I, I get all the decisions that were made behind them. I might do a couple things differently, but I, I get them and they're good stuff. Cause I know uh, it's very easy to understand. I find like even someone who's not big into the analytics, you can just say the bluer, the better. And it's very easy for people to understand. Like even a couple of my buddies who really deny analytics and think they're very stupid, they're very old school hockey fans. And it gets really annoying sometimes having arguments with them, but I send them a chart. Like the other day we were talking about Couturier. Is he a first line center? I know we're going to get into that a bit later, but I sent him a wrap chart of Couturier and Shifley side by side. I blanked out the names and asked him which player looks better. And he, he says Couturier without even knowing it. Like he's like the guy on the left. And it's just funny because he, even he'll understand it, but he'll deny it. He'll go on and deny it, but he'll like be like, oh, that makes sense, I guess. They're easy to interpret for the most part, right? I mean, you... You have the five numbers. Most people know what XGA means at this point, even if they're not into it or don't buy it, so to speak, right? Same, same with CF, CA, right? And so I think they're easy enough to interpret, right? The blue bars and all that, they're, they're definitely easy to get. And I think that even if you, you try to deny them, just seeing them more and more, and just there's, I think there's something about that shade of blue and that shade of red that kind of plays to the human mind. 
so to speak, right? We see these, these blue charts. We see our favorite guy with a blue chart and it's like, oh, he's great. And we see a favorite guy with a red chart and, and we start to think, oh, maybe I don't actually like him so much. They're, they're, they're powerful. My only concern though is just with the idea, right? The blue bad, the blue good, red bad idea. Hockey players are not binary, <laughs> good or bad things, right? There's, there's so much more to it with every player, of course. Mm-hmm. And so I think that as useful as the information is, as valuable as they are, I think that occasionally they can get thrown out just as a dunk, right? Like you say, oh, well, I, I think that Neil Pionk might actually be a decent defenseman in Winnipeg because he has certain tools that I've observed. Yeah. And someone, oh, chart, dunk, I dunk on you, right? And then the, like, the charts aren't always right. They don't repeat that well from year to year. In Pionk's case, he's been fine in Winnipeg by those same charts. <laughs> yeah. So it's just one of those things where I think that there could be a better meeting in the middle amongst everybody with such easily interpretable and useful information, if we did maybe on the pro side, take a bit of a step back and say it's it's more nuanced and complicated than blue, good, red, bad. Going back to the blue, red, and the bad, or bad, good. I was talking with a buddy and we were talking about analytics and eye test. And I kind of think that they go hand in hand because again, he's not big on analytics. We were talking about analytics. He's like, can I see Tatar's chart? So I sent him Tatar's chart. He sees that he's not too good defensively. But for on the offensive zone, he drives a lot of the play. He just doesn't get the finishing. He's like, yeah, that's exactly what I see when I'm watching the game. I'm like, it kind of goes hand in hand and it's good complimentary. Like they, you have to watch a little bit of the player's game and then look at the chart. But if I'm going to go and do an argument with somebody, I'm going to look at the chart first instead of going and waiting to watch a game. That's just what I find easier and more convenient for arguments. Well, the chart, the chart just has everything that's happened is in the chart, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they might cut off a certain year, so you might not be looking what Tatar did when he was in Detroit or whatever, for example, depending on what chart you're looking at. But it has every play. The eye does not have that. Chances are you're not watching every Canadian's game. And even if you are, you're not remembering every single play. And you, and the plays that you do remember, you're not weighting them properly. You're not weighting them equally. You're putting a lot of probably recency bias into how you weight each play you see. Obviously, if it's one or the other, you can be the charts every time, right? I'll, I'll try to do my best I can with the charts. But yeah. Personally, I, I look at the, the team that I've watched, right? The Sharks, I watch every game they play. I don't watch that much of other teams, but I watch every game the Sharks play and I look at the charts and they generally match up. But there are certain things like John Leonard. I think that he's right now, he's a, he's a rookie forward. I don't know if you ever heard of him. You could pull up his chart right now. He's probably, he's between two and three standard deviations above average on expected goals against. I don't see a phenomenal four checker or D zone takeaway artist or any of that when I watch him play. My take on it is it's probably just variance. He'll probably drop down to like an average defensive forward next year. But it's still like you, I, there still are things I think where they will surprise you from the charts. But this is a one-year sample. Players will line up. The charts will line up with what you see, especially if you can mm-hmm. get an idea of, of how you see certain things and how they actually translate to pushing the play a certain direction. Exactly. And I want to go, you were talking about, you watch the Sharks. I watch every Jets game. I do a little bit of tracking to just see what I get from the info because I think it's cool to do. One of my favorite players used to be Blake Wheeler. And watching him these past couple of years, he's been total garbage in my eyes. Absolute garbage. He's a great passer. He's not very good defensively. And I look at the chart and I'm like, oh, this makes complete sense. He's horrible on his own end. He's a really dynamic passer. And he plays really well in the offensive zone, especially on the power play. And I don't find that on the chart. Like I look at the chart. It's not that high for power play offense and i'd expect it to be a lot higher but maybe it's just because he's not scoring the goals he's just passing the first pass or i'm not sure how that kind of goes 
first of all, I've seen Blake Wheeler as well. He he is great on the power play. I remember Sharks versus Jets game. Vividly remember just being amazed by how he just controls play from that right half ball, and he was making passes to Patrick Line. And we all knew that Line was. We all knew the goal there was to, for Line to take the one timer. Everyone knew it. Everyone watching the game, every player on the ice knew it. And yet Wheeler still got those passes across, and he still took the one timers. Right. So yeah, he looks like a hell of a player on the power play. And you talk about the charts. I don't know exactly what the charts say about his power play impact right now. I would say that you have to consider the sample size for power play is very small. Generally, you have units of five guys. Yeah. And so the way regression works is you try to figure out how one variable in, or how like a predictive variable, right? So whether Blake Wheeler's on the ice affects a target variable such as expected goals or shots or goals, whatever, right, for 60 minutes. And it's really hard to run a proper regression when Blake Wheeler, the variable, shows no variance from Mark Shifley, the variable, because they all play every minute together on the power play. I know that's not exactly how it works, but it basically is. And minutes that guys don't play together are often just like line changes. You know, they change one guy, but don't change the other. Right. I don't, I don't, I don't like closely look at Winnipeg's ice time, but I don't think Maurice splits that unit often. I don't think those two play apart often. So if you play them every minute together, a regression model cannot determine who is influencing what. A regression model is at the mercy of the minutes they play together. So if you put me out with Connor McDavid on every shift, every single shift McDavid plays, you got me, right? A, a beer leaguer who's not even good in the beer leagues. The regression model will say we're the exact same player because it doesn't know any better. And so on the power play, right? So that, that, that obviously that doesn't happen in real life, right? It's an extreme example. Like, yeah, if that kind of stuff were happening, these stats would be totally useless. They're, they don't happen. So the stats are not totally useless, but it still illustrates how these models are just completely at the mercy of the time these guys spend together and the time that players spend to, or sorry, the time that guys spend apart and the time that guys spend apart on the power play is few and far between. And it doesn't really mean much. It's not always really the same thing as the time they spend together. So I would say maybe you want to trust your eye there. Another thing is, I know the stats nerds hate it, but honestly, if you look at power play points per 60, primary points per 60 minutes on the power play, I think that's probably better mm-hmm. than, than the, the charts. Honestly, I think that's probably better. That's just my take. I haven't studied that closely. There's, there are ways to study it that could be done to figure that out. I haven't done them. I might do it at some point. Yeah, he's... He sits in that he sits in that one spot on the left left side, below the below the goal line, and he just passes to Stastny, Shifley, or Connor across. And it's it's very fun to watch his passes because they're as you said before, they're great passes. They, they they've moved him there then since I was watching. See, I'm I'm thinking mm-hmm. a few years back when they had him right half wall with lining on the uh, trigger yeah. top left corner. Yeah, I, I'm sure he's doing great wherever he is though. He, he's a good passer, big, strong, smart player. Yep. After Line left, they kind of moved Connor and Shifley up to the basically they have Morrissey at the top and then Shifley Connor here, Stastny in front of the net, and Wheeler down here. They have it, it's it's very good. It's fun to watch. And I kind of just want to go back to the expected goals. You were talking about how Patrick Kane, the passes that he makes are 15 feet out, and it, the goals model, expected goals model may not show how that shot's very likely to go in. Do you think that that could change over time with more people getting into it? maybe more people doing analytics? Do you think it could get fixed that way? So we just don't have that information. We don't have a pass that was made. That's not available in the NHL's play-by-play data. 
So it doesn't matter how many people. Uh, it, theoretically, you guys get guys to track every game. It's actually been done. So I don't know if you know who Corey Schneider is. If I, I think I pronounced his last name right. He does all the controlled entry tracking stuff. If you see a stat on Twitter and it's an NHL stat tracked like a micro stat, chances are that's Corey Snyder who tracked it. He is an animal. He is incredible. He is, I call him our leader in the fight against the black box because he does so much to bring a good idea uh, to the public of how valuable these stats are and to make them available. And a few years ago, a data scientist named Alex Novet built an expected goal model using only games that Corey had tracked. And it had this pre-shot passing movement stuff, right? That Corey tracks, the play-by-play -play doesn't track. And, and the model was a little bit more accurate than, the model, than a model without that information. So it improved the model. So it, it can be done theoretically if we just get a bunch of people to track the game, if there were some kind of open source tracking project done by hockey Twitter, it's doable for sure. But until then, we're at the mercy of the play-by-play. -play. We just don't get certain information. And it's tough to say exactly how much it really does change, right? It is sort of a guess right now that, that if we had a perfect model, Patrick Kane would have multiple blue bars on his expected goals for. I don't, I don't think that is a guarantee. But that's, yeah, we're right now, now we just don't have that information, but if we get it, it, it will improve. It's, but we will get some information at some point. It will improve. Yes. Okay. All right. I kind of want to move on to an NHL executive quote, and I want to hear your take on this quote. It would be a great trade for the wild. If it was Dumba in a first, I like Sean Couturier. He's not a number one center, but he's a really elite guy that everyone used to think was a third line center, but is definitely a second line center. He's kind of a modern day Ron Francis. And the first part of the question is, do you think that Sean Couturier is honestly a second line center? <laughs> so first of all, I'm just enthralled by the quote. It's such a roller coaster. It starts off with something so reasonable, right? That like, I, that's a great trade for the wild. Dumba and a first. I mean, Dumba's good. A first is good, but I would do that trade if I were the wild. And then it just kind of like, just goes in all these different directions. Just gets stranger and stranger. <laughs> so first of all, yes. To answer your question, I think Sean Couturier is a first line center. He's, there's definitely not 31 centers in the league that are better than him. There sure as hell won't be 32 when Seattle comes in. I think there is a question to be a discussion to be had that you can't win the cup with the 31st best center. If you look at Stanley Cup winning teams since the lockout, outside of the Anaheim Ducks in 2007, they all have a, a number one center who you could make the case is top 15 in the league. So I think that if you use a very high bar, a very high criteria for number one center, and you say there are maybe 15 to 20 in the league, I think Sean Couture is still a number one center. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just as Ryan O'Reilly was with St. Louis, I think those are similar players. Analytically, Couture grades out a bit stronger. So I, there's really no question in mind. Yeah, Sean Couture is a number one center for sure. He's been the number one center on Philadelphia for years. It's no coincidence that Claude Giroux's career was dying, and then he scored 100 points and finished top five in heart voting as soon as he moved to wing playing flanking Couturier. No question. Couturier is a number one center, right? Great offense, great defense. Yeah. Simple stuff. Yes. Did anybody ever think he was a third line center? I'm not sure. I don't think I've ever thought he was a third line center, especially maybe it's because I only started watching hockey like super intensely a couple years ago, but I don't know if I've ever thought he's a third line center. Yeah. So a couple, couple years ago, I think it was 2017, 2018 that he scored his 76 points or whatever. Before that he was scoring like 30 to 40. People called him a third line center. Yeah, it's that's the role he played, I think. So uh, yeah, when he came, yeah, that was that's what people called him. 
I mean, it's, the player evolved. Yeah. <laughs> right? So it's like, yeah, people did say he used to be a third-line center. People also used to say that he was playing in junior, because he was. People also used to say that he was a kid playing in midget or wherever, because he was. He's evolved, right? It's not like people were... The, the analytics would say he was always a, an excellent play driver, an excellent defensive forward, who was probably more like a second-line center. But... Yeah, he, he was considered a third-line center. I don't think that was an outlandish take, even if I would disagree with it. And the second part of the question, modern-day Ron Francis. Isn't Ron Francis, like, top 10 in all-time scoring? When was he ever a second-line center? These, these executive quotes, I just, every time I hear one, I have so many questions. I don't get how they come to be. They just, they seem like they're a parody, almost. And I don't operate under the assumption that, that all executives are, are dumb and that the five smart nerd guys on Twitter could do better than all of them. I really don't think that's the case. But some of these quotes, I don't know, I don't know if these executives are just clickbaiting or trolling. Obviously, Ron Francis was not a second-line center. He's, you said it, he's like top five, top ten all-time in points. He's second in assists. Even if he used the high qualification of a top 15, top 10, okay. He definitely was a top 10 center who scored like 100 points every year. He couldn't stop scoring 100 points. So I don't, I have to hear with the executive. I have to talk with them to really get a sense of it. Until then, I'm just going to like, just chalk it up as a weird quote. I wish I knew who these executives were. I think Hockey Twitter would have a field day with these executives if they came out and said who they were. I think they would probably honestly get fired if, if there was that much backlash, because there could be a lot of backlash here if people knew who these guys were. I don't know. I mean, they're not doing anything bad. I, I think teams would just... I mean, teams might internally wonder, like, why is this guy saying this stuff? But it's just it's just the guy talking off the record. Even though it's on the record, it's not on his name, so it's off the record. It's even more... Just, whoever this person is, they might just, just feel emboldened to just say whatever because they really just don't care. I saw another quote. I, I don't have a question for it. I just saw another quote. It was, the Wild don't want to trade Kaprizov. If, would they do Kaprizov for Eichel? Kaprizov in a first. They wouldn't want to trade him because they've had him for so long and they've been waiting for him. Like, I just want to know, is that actually some, something that would run through a GM's head? We've been waiting five years for this guy, so we're not going to move him even though we could get arguably a top 10 center in the league. Yeah, I mean, the, the thought process doesn't make any sense to me. Certain people just have certain thought processes they come up on. Was that a quote from an executive as well? Yeah, it was. I, I don't have the exact quote, but uh, I saw a screenshot of it. Some executive. I, I, I don't know what to say. I guess somebody thinks it. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't logically make any sense at all, right? If I, if I, if I go to a restaurant mm-hmm. and I'm waiting for a salad and I have to wait an hour for it and they bring me a pizza instead okay, I'll take the better thing, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. I don't care if I waited for something, if I can trade for something better, it doesn't matter. The, the logic just does not compute. So I just, I don't quite get where the logic went there. There's, there's an error somewhere. If, if you like go back in the logical diagram, you can find the error somewhere. I'm sure that executive would probably even reconsider if you kind of pointed that out to them, but I, I don't understand it all. <laughs> All right, I kind of want to move on to some of these rapid-fire questions that are very controversial. Uh, The first one here I got is, I know this has been really big, and I think the argument's kind of been split a lot farther this season, but if you're building a team, are you going to take Austin Matthews or Leon Dreisaitl? Austin Matthews. I know the argument is that Dreisaitl has 100 points and he's won a heart. 
what do you think of that? Like, are accolades that important? Or do you, do you think that Austin Matthews is genuinely the best player? So back in 2013, Alex Ovechkin played the whole season at right wing. I forget exactly who the coach was. I'm pretty sure it was Adam Oates. Like 99% sure it was Adam Oates. Adam Oates moved Alex Ovechkin to the right wing. He had played left wing his whole career. Played right wing all season. And he made the first all-star team as a right wing, right? The end of season all-star team. He also made the second all-star team as a left wing. He did not play left wing that season. And voters were specifically instructed not to vote for him for left wing because he had played right wing all season. But they still did. Because not only are the voters incapable of watching the games clearly, they're incapable of even getting a simple memo that Bob McKenzie sent out. And I can, I can pull up the Bob McKenzie tweet and send it. But the voters don't watch games. They don't look at anything beyond points in the narrative. Sorry, I hate to say it. I'm sure some of them do. Some of them look at more. But at the end of the day, the collective body that votes for those awards has zero credibility in my mind. Absolutely none. If you can't tell me what position your MVP, because Alex Ovechkin won the heart in 2013 that season, right? So the player they consider the MVP, I don't care if you can't tell me whether the Sharks fourth line winger Jeff Biel plays left wing or right wing, right? You shouldn't know that information unless you're a person who watches every game they play. But Alex Ovechkin, the Hart Trophy winner that year, the Rocket Richard winner, the voters couldn't tell you what position he played. At that point, why would I take their opinion seriously? So no, I don't care about accolades at all. I could not care less what any voter says. The points is actually an enticing argument to me. Even though the analytical guys hate points, I think they're the worst thing invented since ever, right? The reality is they explain a pretty good percentage of variance in more robust analytics, right? Because most players, more forwards anyway, do most of their damage on offense and points tend to show that. It's interesting that Drysdale was able to score 110 points. That's one of the strongest scoring seasons in a long time, in a long time as far as points go, because he did that in 70 games, 110 points. That's ridiculous. The analytics really don't show him being anywhere close to that good, and I think there's, there's some nuance on both sides. I think the true impact he had that year and the true player he is is somewhere in between there, right? Matthews scored 80 points. That's a big gap of 30 points. I think by my model, Matthews had about two more wins above replacement. Those are big gaps on both sides, right? Both players are great according to both stats, but there's a big gap on both of them. And it's, it's really hard to look at these two players and, and compare them, but Matthews grades out slightly higher in the models, and he drives play a lot better. He's just a consistently positive play driver, which drives idle really isn't. Part of that might be that Drysdale is just a bit underrated in a similar vein to Patrick Kane, where he makes these great passes. Austin Matthews doesn't do that. He's, he's more of a shooter first, and he's a fine passer, but he's not some outstanding high-danger passer. And so it's fair to say the models likely underrate Drysdale relative to Matthews as far as play driving goes. But ultimately, Matthews grades out better by the models. And Matthews always centers his own line. Dry's Idol has generally played wing with McDavid. I know that he played about 35 games last year on his own line with Nugent Hopkins and Yamamoto. I know they did very well. This year, Dry's Idol has been moved back to wing with McDavid, right? He has not consistently been at the center position. And historically, outside of last season, around 30 games, he has had really poor results playing at center. 
You can blame some of that on his teammates. But at the end of the day, if you look at the Edmonton Oilers with Leon Dreisaitl and without Connor McDavid, so the minutes that Dreisaitl plays as a center, and then you compare those to the Edmonton Oilers without either of Dreisaitl or McDavid, they're actually quite similar in terms of shot shares, expected goal shares, and even goal shares. When he plays center, the evidence suggests that at 5-on-5, drives out of playing center, does not significantly improve his team when he's on the ice. That's just what has happened. There's a good degree of uncertainty with those stats. They're not perfect. There might be some ways his team is still harming him. The stats don't pick up. But he just does not dominate as a center in the NHL. Matthews has since day one. Not a hard call for me. Not saying Matthews leaks better, but I'm not thinking twice when I'm answering that. All right. I want to go back to you said there was a 30 point gap. Do you think some of that could be dry settles getting some puck luck and that's why the analytics don't show it? Or what could explain that? So, what's interesting about the, the analytics, right, is when you build a descriptive model like wins above replacement, you actually try to include luck because you want to try to explain the goal differential that each team has had. And so you accept that a team player who shot 20%, I think, I know Drysdale did that in 2019, not 2020. But if you shoot 20%, you're not going to do that again. But at the same time, you did it, it happened, and you helped your team a whole hell of a lot by shooting 20%, right? Even in those models that are descriptive, Matthew still appears to have provided more value last season and over the course of the last three seasons before this one and this season as well. They're not far off because Drysdale has been great at shooting as well arguably somewhat lucky there, but Matthews has been ahead even in those. Now with the puck luck, I think Dreisaitl has had some. I think his shooting percentages and on-ice shooting percentages have just been ludicrous over the past two years. I know that he's inflating that himself. I know he's a great passer, great shooter, but I think there's still some regression to be seen there. That, that is another thing that makes me hesitant about him, whereas Matthews, I know even with a low shooting percentage on ice, he's still going to be doing very well. All right, I want to go to the next question, which also has Matthews in it, and another Oilers player, actually. Would you rather take Matthews or McDavid? That one's Connor McDavid. He is just better. I was kind of worried if you were going to say Matthews, because I, I know a lot of people on, on Twitter, specifically like Leafs Twitter, have been going on about how Matthews is going to pass McDavid right away. But it's interesting. Well, that's Leafs Twitter. They've been, they've been saying a lot of things were going to happen. <laughs> I'll tell you that in 2017... It, they all told you they would win a playoff round by 2020, and that didn't happen. A lot of other things they said would happen didn't happen. I don't worry too much about what they say. <laughs> They've got their high expectations, and they seldom come to pass. I want to go to the next question, which is about a defenseman who, at the start of the show, you called him overrated. I agree with that. How high do you think Jones's value, considering these executives' quotes, the GM's thought process when it comes to defensemen, how high do you think Seth Jones's value is? So I think GMs take a much more holistic approach than the single executives that Craig Custance interviews in those. In fact, I think Craig Custance might only interview like two or three guys. He might just circle two or three guys and they might be some of the less good executives just from the fact that they're willing to divulge all that information too. Like I said, I do not operate under the assumption that all GMs are just these bunch of idiots who only use points in ice time. I really don't think that's the case. I think they take a pretty holistic yeah. approach. I think they all have analytics departments with at least one person who's got more experience there than I do. So I don't, I don't think they're a bunch of idiots. With that being said, I think Seth Jones would get a big package, way too big for what he is. I think that he would get 
you know, multiple first round picks, a great prospect if Columbus tried to trade him today. No question. Big value. He's going to probably get recommended eight figures in the open market when he goes there in two years. And he's got a ton of value around the league. Nothing he can do between now and then is really going to change that. Do you think that Columbus should trade Jones and kind of go for a rebuild? I was saying a little while ago to myself that if Columbus did tank, or they have tanked this season, right? They, they don't look to be making the playoffs. If they get a high draft pick out of this season and they trade Seth Jones in one year and fire Tortorella, that would be a pretty nice one-year rebuild going forward next year with the coach who can use Max Domi and Patrick Line better. So yeah, I think at this point they're best off doing maybe maybe just kind of a reset or a retool. I don't know how comfortable their organization is tanking and losing multiple years of of success, and I don't I don't know that they need to do that. I think they've maybe got some pieces in place to be good, but they I do think they should absolutely trade Seth Jones ASAP. Yes. We talked about one of the worst analytical and stat-wise, he's not very good. Well, he puts up some good points, but who do you think's the biggest analytical darling in the league? I would just, I, I hate to say it, I really hate to say it, but the answer to this one is easily Valerie and Chushkin. I was going to say that one of the two answers would be Valerie and Chushkin or Vince Dunn. Those are kind of the two that come up a lot. I think Vince Dunn's analytics are, are pretty, not too far from average. They're above average, but you could make the case he's an average player just getting kind of pumped up by whatever fluke, right? He doesn't play a lot of minutes. He is pretty sheltered. Valeria Chushkin is also somebody who does not play a lot of minutes, who's kind of sheltered against weaker competition. But this is three years now. He's had some of the best defensive numbers in the league. And in the last two years, if you run a regular rise of just a plus minus on the last two years together, so you punch them together as one, Chushkin is, is on a different level from everybody else. Unexpected goal driving. It's it's a weird conclusion. It does, I think, bring some question to the to how effective the models are when a player like him is looking like the best play driver by far. But he is. There's something going on there. He is good. He is making good things happen when he's on the ice. Might not be as good as the analytics say, but he is a hell of a player. And people looking at his points and sleeping on him are just not informed. He is the number one analytical darling. Easy. Yep. So would you say this is one of those situations where people should look at multiple analytics, not just the Rapham charts? Yeah. So with Nuchushkin's case, he is not a great finisher. I don't even think he's a good one. I don't recall exactly, but I don't think he, I mean, I know that he scored zero goals in 2019, right? So he's got the capability of just not scoring. That's never going to happen to Leon Dreisaitl, right? Or, or many of these other great finishers. In addition, he doesn't play the power play. I don't know if he kills penalties or is good doing that. So it's really just even strength expected goal driving. And it boils down to how accurate are those metrics? How how much is the uncertainty and how much is variance just boost pumping his tires? And then also just is is his team pumping his tires? Is he just, you know, a solid player in the perfect situation? I think if, if you like if you look at wins above replacement, he's not even like a 90th percentile player by any of my models in any season. I don't think he's just very good, right? But yeah, you need to look at multiple analytics. You need to consider what each of them mean. Play driving at even strength is not the be-all, end-all. It's probably not even the most important single thing a guy can do in a season. So yeah, you, you definitely need to take a holistic approach. The Rapham charts are definitely not the, the end of the discussion point there. He's definitely not as good as those suggest, but he is just a great player. He's been doing great things for the Avalanche for two years now. They're the best team in the league, and he's a part of it. I keep it going with great defensive players. This question is more geared to, I've seen it a lot on Twitter, 
And do you think Suzuki can be the next Petrice Bergeron in the NHL? Suzuki's in his draft plus four season. So he was drafted four years ago. He scored about 40 points in 70 games last year. He's on about the same pace this year, right? So that was his draft plus three and draft plus four. In each of Bergeron's draft plus three and draft plus four seasons, he scored 70 points, both of them. And in his draft plus one season, his rookie year, that was 2003-2004, the dead puck era, Bergeron scored about the same 40 points in 70 games that Suzuki did in his draft plus three season. Just looking at points, Suzuki's not in the same class. He's, he, can't, he can't sniff Bergeron's jock as a point scorer, right? He's way behind. He has a lot of catching up to do already. He's not close. And we know Bergeron's also the best defensive forward of this era. We didn't have the, the play-by-play data for, the, for his first three years, so it's not even until next year that we can start comparing Suzuki to what Bergeron was at the same age. But no, he's not the next Patrice Bergeron. I guess I can't say anything about what he will be for certain, but he's, he's done a lot less than Bergeron did at the same age. It's that simple. Not a good sign. Next question. Do you think that the Avs have the best defense core in the league? I would say probably, yeah. I, I don't think I can name one that's better. I know that Taves and Makar are both phenomenal. They're both just incredible defensemen. I think Samuel Girard is very overrated, but he's also making his case as, as a definitely a good defenseman. The rest of them, they might not be superstars, but they just play above the sum of their parts. And that's, that's what ultimately matters the results. Maybe their forwards are helping them, but yeah, I think they have the best defense for in the league. I could, I could be swayed to somebody else. Maybe some, somebody who has a great power play quarterback too. Like I said, I could look into it, but if you, if you were asking me to pick a team off the top of my head, I'd probably pick Colorado. And then I, I don't, worry about that decision but there might be a team with a better one and colorado's defense score is really one guy that most like casual hockey fans will think of who's a great defenseman i don't think many people are on to Devontae's, and i think that's sad to see because he's a really good defenseman yeah he, and he was great for the islanders that's the thing is he was an analytics starling for, for two years with the islanders jay fresh wrote about him jack Hahn wrote about him it was known and it, I, it was, I think it was a pretty blunt, big blunder by Lou Lamarola to trade Taves for just two second round picks. I get that the his cap strapped and market might not have been great, but I, God, it's disappointing that nobody paid more because he's a, he's a great defenseman. And Lou Lamarola, the reigning NHL GM of the year. He's done some good things. I mean, you can't argue with results. His Islanders, he came in, they, they were like a, an 80 point team that lost their best player. And they've been a playoffs team for three years now with some success in the playoffs. So at some point, you got to give credit for results. And the next question has to go, I know a lot of people have asked for some change with the Calder rulings. Do you think that Kaprizov is running away with the Calder this year? It seems to be that people are going to say he's going to win the Calder. It, it's what's going to happen. I, I haven't really looked closely at, at rookie numbers, to be honest. I don't, I don't love the idea of like trying to hand out an award based on 35 games of play or whatever. It's not going to be that much better when we're at 56 at the end of the season. And not every team might even play 56. But it seems pretty clear that the narrative is for Kaprizov to win the Calder. And I, don't, I can't think of anybody who maybe is more deserving. I think Kaprizov is overrated looking at the analytics. He's got some, some flaws in his game. He's been, his stock has been inflated by high shooting percentage. But yeah, he's going to win the Calder for sure, and he might deserve it too. I, I'm not sure there, but he's going to win it definitely, no question. My next question, has Vasilevsky redeemed himself as an elite goalie in the NHL? He's, been, he's always been good. He, well, he was good for the past two years. He was bad in the 2019 playoffs, great in the 2020 playoffs, 
He's a goalie. They're pretty random. He does appear to have the, the best athleticism, the best, probably looks the best of any goalie when you watch them. His results have not been anywhere near his reputation until this year. And I think he's played like 25 games this year. He's probably, if I were not giving the Hart Trophy to McDavid, I'd give it to Vasilevsky this year. He's been amazing. But goalies are goalies. I don't really... Uh, he certainly hasn't been consistently good enough for long enough for me to say that he is the exception to the rule of goalies being basically random, right? He's just another, to me, just another goalie putting up great results this year, right? Who's put up some good results, some questionable results in the past. So I don't think he had anything he needed to redeem himself from either. At the end of the day, he was good. Stanley Cup, Vezina Trophy, doesn't really matter what the nerds think, <laughs> right? So I don't think he was in need of redemption. Maybe after the 2019 playoffs, he was. He was terrible against Columbus, but he redeemed himself in those playoffs. And now he's just, He's kicking ass. He, he could fall off a cliff tomorrow. He's a goalie. Keep it going with the goalies. Um, before I get into the next question, I just want to talk about Connor Hellebuck. Watching him play every other year, he has a bad season, or not bad, a mediocre season, and then the next year, he can make a case for the Vesna. Happens every time. This year is the one exception, though, because he's been playing really good this year, and this is supposed to be his mediocre year based on the every other year. So you're looking at, I think he's had, what, five years in the NHL? Yeah. As a starter, he's had four. Mm-hmm. So if you if you flip a coin just four or five times, but if you if you call heads the good year and tails the mediocre year, yeah, you might see oh I've had heads every other year, tails every other year, but now I've got a second heads in a row, right? It's just that's just kind of I think anytime you you see a pattern like that, you need to identify how thrown off would I be if I were to flip a coin here? You wouldn't say anything about the coin there because you know it's random and you know it's just like two flips. Right? So in Hellebuck's case, like I say, goalies from year to year are extremely random. Hellebuck has posted some of the best results in the league over the past four years. He's been the best goalie over that sample. Right. He's playing great right now. I think that Winnipeg needs him to play great, looking at their five-on-five metrics. I, I don't know. It's just, I, like I said, I don't, I don't watch him often, right? So I can't speak to his technique or anything like that. But it's nice to see just a consistently great goalie. I think it's just good for the game to have guys who are just great so it's, it's nice to see, but I, I don't have any confidence he'll be suddenly bad or suddenly great tomorrow. It's just very little confidence in, in him probably being better than average going forward. <laughs> Speaking with a goalie who's been great over the past couple of seasons, Calvin Peterson, do you think he's the real deal? And do you think he'll be a huge part of the Kings as they exit this rebuild? I think he's played like 25 games or like 35, something like that. It's just, it's like half a season. It's not even a full season in a starter role. So it's, he's played well. I think he's like top five in my goalie goal state of expectation. And I've watched a lot of games, Sharks, Kings. He's great. You can tell there's a difference between with, with, with him and quick and net, right? The Sharks won last night against LA off an awful blunder that quick made on the third goal, the game winner. Peterson probably doesn't make that blunder. He's, he's been great. But like I say, it's just, it, it, I, I just, I, I won't say like anything like that about any goalie. I just, I can't say that anybody, I know it might disappoint you because you, it seems you are a goalie, right? And you, you seem to love them and you want to believe that, that you'll be great yep. going forward for yeah. your team. <laughs> but it's just the reality, what I, the data I've worked with, I'm open to, to being disproven. I'm open to learning new things. But Peterson, there's just not very much of a track record at all. He's sure as hell not a guy that I'm going to break a rule for. And, and say he's going to be great. I, Hellebuck, I'd consider. Vasilevsky, I'd consider doing that for Peterson. He needs to do what he's already done like three times again, and then I'll, I'll start to consider it. Speaking of another goalie who has like no sample size, Kevin Lankinen, do you think he can, can continue to contribute for the Hawks or will he slow down? 
I think I've already got him as a negative goal saved above expectation this year. I think it was just like a, a he had like a five game hot streak and then it's kind of falling apart. Checking right now, I've got him at negative zero point zero eight. So he's been average. Oh, so average. So you're, so you're saying I should drop him in fantasy then? Well, I don't know. I don't know what your fantasy league scores on. If they score wins, that's that's a whole different thing to try and predict. It, that's I I don't play fantasy. Looks like he's been about average. And he could be anything going forward. And another debate that's gotten some traction over the past couple of days, uh, Columbus player Brandon Dubinsky, or former player, I guess now, but he said that he would rather take Ovi and the Crosby versus Ovi. And I, I kind of want to know, where do you stand on Crosby versus Ovi? I'm definitely a Crosby guy on that one. He, Yeah, he's got the the great, the, by far the better career play driving numbers, and that's not everything. But the case for Ovechkin really is just the goals. I get it. It's hard to score goals in the NHL, and it's how you win. But every goal that Ovechkin scores, not everyone, but a lot of them, a good percentage of them, are created by his teammates. At the end of the day, you can say that that nobody is, has ever been better than Ovechkin at scoring goals. I won't necessarily argue that. I might not agree, but I won't argue. But at the same time, I don't think anybody has ever been put in a better position to score goals than Ovechkin. You watch that power play. It's literally like all about passing Ovechkin. And their five-on-five play, I'm sure, runs through him as well. He is put in a great position to score goals. He does it. Has a ton of value through it. I'm not saying they should do it totally differently. But at the end of the day, he's just not a Crosby. He is not a guy who went out and centered his own line and dominated like that. They're just not quite the same caliber to me. And that's not a sign to Ovechkin, but Crosby's just been an incredible player. He's just had an amazing career. Ovechkin, great career too, but just not quite there for me. All right, next question. Who's the most underrated and overrated player in the NHL? I'd say most overrated Seth Jones, right? And and then most underrated. There's like real hipster picks I could throw out there, like Ilya Leobushkin. You might have never even heard of him, but he has pretty good regularized edition plus minus charts, and like no one's ever heard of him. But then there's also like honestly, it's probably just Valerie Nichushkin. I, I just I hate to be so cliche with the two answers. I hate to give the the two answers that every analytics nerd is expected to give. But I really believe that as far as impact relative to perception, nobody's more overrated than Seth Jones. Nobody's more underrated than Nachushkin. I'll give an honorable mention to Carey Price on the overrated. And I'll give an honorable mention to Devon Taves on the underrated. Yeah, I, I, Jones and Nachushkin. We were talking about Columbus a little bit before, and you just talked about Seth Jones. Should Columbus fire torts and rebuild or just do a quick retool? So I think we went over that and my, my conclusion, I guess I wasn't clear about torts. I'd probably just fire him. It seems to be toxic with him in there. And they seem to, I mean, I think that Max Domi and Patrick Laine for all their, all their flaws and they got a ton of flaws and it's not likely, but I think you could potentially see those two putting together some pretty solid seasons and really kind of driving a playoff team on their first line. I think they have that talent. They've kind of displayed it in spurts in the past. And if you want to get the most out of those two, you do fire Tortorella and it just seems to be toxic in there with him. Fire him and you kind of, again, you know, you want to trade Seth Jones, you want to maximize future assets and then just see, see how the team looks. Maybe don't tank it immediately. They have some pretty good players. Bjorkstrand is a guy who probably could also be considered most underrated player in the league. They have some good players. So I don't know if they want to do a full tank. But given that it's hard for them to attract free agents and it's hard for them to keep some players, maybe, I would say they maybe do want to tank and try to get like a real number one center because that is pretty important winning a Stanley Cup. 
the other day I was talking with uh, Matt Larkin of the Hockey News, and he said he gave the perfect example for Tortorella. He's the kind of guy who you want to carry out of a rebuild, but he's not a guy who you're going to win with, generally. Well, he's won a Stanley Cup, so it just that doesn't quite yeah. follow for me. I think he's he's been in. It was Vigneault that went to the finals with the Rangers, but I think you can. I think he's a good coach. I think he seemed to get a lot out of his teams and his players. I think there's a question of whether his message runs stale quick, and I think there's a question of whether he's maybe a bit of a maybe a bit of a toxic or maybe abusive presence. I'm not saying that he is. But I think there are certain pieces of evidence that that people have gathered that could potentially make that case. It's it's a tough guy to analyze, but he, he it was really impressive what he got out of the Columbus Blue Jackets last year at five on five after all the players they lost. I think you can win with him definitely. I think there's there's questions about his approach and whether it's it's a it's a fair workplace approach or whether it's the approach that leads best to success. But he has got quite a bit of results. Speaking of a team who's gotten quite a bit of results this season. Do you think Hellebuck and the Jets' offense alone can carry them to the Stanley Cup? doesn't seem likely. They don't fit the profile of any of the Stanley Cup winners as far as five-on-five play driving. Every Stanley Cup winner has been close to breaking even. They're not even close. You know, Pittsburgh in 2009 and then uh, Washington in 2018, those teams are both not elite play driving. I think they're a bit below 50% on like expected goal stats, but Winnipeg's just not even close to that. No, I don't see it. When you mean like um, not close to play driving, could that be like their guys don't play defense? Like, for example, like Connor Shifley Wheeler, is that kind of what contributes to that? Just as a team as a whole, they just don't control the majority of play as far as expected goals or shot attempts, right? And again, there's uncertainty with those stats. They're not perfect. But the teams that win the Stanley Cups are all have a profile. They, they have a type generally. They occasionally deviate from that type, but even when they do, they still look a lot better than the Jets there. I don't. I can't put it on any one player or any one line. I haven't really looked that close, but just as a whole, the Jets' numbers just aren't really up there with the Stanley Cup winners. Keeping going with Stanley Cup winners, um, Carter Verhage, he's looked really, really good in Florida. And I, I kind of said at the start of the year that I think Verhage's kind of going to break out. And do you think he can continue to produce at this rate given the small sample size at an elite producing level? Yeah, so I know that my own stats said that he would be quite a good play driver for Florida and a good shooter as well. When I ran those simulations at the start of the season, he was a player whose name came up as a another underrated player. Let's say he's got 33 points in 39 games and a plus 23. I'm going to guess that he's probably got some, some fortunate on-ice shooting. I mean, he's shooting 18% this year. That's like Stamkos territory. Probably not going to keep that up. And then I'm going to pull up his five-on-five on-ice numbers, but just, just my guess is going to be probably not going to sustain those points. He's probably not a true high-end like point scorer or like a, a power play superstar, right? Again, I'm not an expert on this player, but generally guys who, who flounder or who kind of just, not flounder, but are just in the minors until age 24 or whatnot don't tend to become elite NHL producers. He's on like a 70-point like a pace right now. He's probably like a... 50 point guy. I don't know. He's, he's, he's at 9% five on five on ice shooting, which is the highest of any Panthers player. That's probably bound to drop just a bit. And I'm going to talk about your favorite team here, the Sharks. Do you think that they can make a serious playoff push, not to win the cup, but just to make the playoffs? Yeah. I think that of the four teams right now in the Western conference who are still gunning for a spot, right? The Kings, the Sharks, the Blues, and the Coyotes. 
I think the Sharks have the best chance of the playoffs of those four. They have the best five-on-five five play driving metrics. They're not great. They're just a, they're about average, depending on what you look at. That's better than the other three. And I think they have the best chance to make the playoffs. And another team that you talked about there, St. Louis. Do you think Bennington is still a good enough goalie to win a cup with in St. Louis? He won one just, just not long ago. He won a cup. Really, I, there's 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 so much team stuff involved. It's not a one man show. And and when it comes to any goalie, like I say, it's just hard to say a goalie is good or not. Because by the time you by the time you're done getting out of your breath that they are good, they might have become bad, right? So I think Bennington could totally win a Stanley Cup tomorrow. Sure, put him on the good team, some confidence, totally. A team that that looks like they might have a shot at the Cup, the Leafs. Do you think that they could find a replacement for Anderson in a short notice and try not to burn out Campbell while he's hot? I think they'll probably just stick with Anderson. I don't think that they're really going to put assets into acquiring another goalie. It just seems like a headache. I mean, maybe they'll try to. I think they'll just ride out Anderson's contract and give him another chance at, at taking back a starting role in these last 20 games and then keep him as insurance. All right, last segment before I let you go. And it's just two questions here. The first one, you're doing a lot in analytics. Are you planning on trying to get a job in the NHL as like an analytics? What's, what's the official title, like head of analytics in the NHL? Uh, everyone's, they got different titles, right? Because they got whole departments. So there's a head of analytics, there's... I think the, the junior title would just be like quantitative analyst. And that is what I'm working towards. That's my goal. And this, the last question, have you ever considered trying to become an NHL GM? Haven't we all? That's, that's a dream. If someone gives me the job, I'm not going to turn it down. But no one's offered me yet. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you for coming on the show. It was a great yeah. interview. Really fun talking with you. Absolutely. Have a great night. Yeah, fun being on. Take care. If you enjoyed this week's episode of the Boys Talk Hockey Podcast, be sure to leave a five-star review and share with a friend.